as we uh, turn our attention to God's Word and to uh, hearing it and preaching it. I'm reminded this morning of those iconic uh, Pittsburgh intersections where you have uh, five or six roads kind of all coming together at different angles. Um, I, I've never been in a city other than Pittsburgh that has those, and they make following a GPS difficult, don't they? Because the GPS says turn left, and you're thinking, well, there are three lefts. Which which one do I take? Um, Perhaps our, our recent preaching schedule feels just a little bit like that because for a while we were in this long sermon series in Isaiah, uh, which we interrupted to do a five-week study on the Lord's Supper. I just hope that that was an immense blessing to you. It was to me. Um, it just helped me immensely as we think about taking communion together. Uh, but then around the same time, we also kicked off a, a once-a-month series uh, on the character of God that we're just kind of going to intersperse. Uh, throughout the rest of the year. And so I just realized that you might be coming this morning thinking kind of like those five-way intersections. Well, which direction are we going this morning? Um, we are going to continue the, the character of God's study this morning. And I just promise that here, moving forward, it gets, it'll get simpler. So uh, last week, Rob brought us back to Isaiah. We'll go back to Isaiah next week. And then once a month, we'll just uh, focus on a different attribute of God uh, interspersed in that study of Isaiah. So that's, that's what you can expect here going forward. This morning, uh, as we focus on the character of God, uh, we're going to focus on how God is unchanging, that God is immutable. Um, and what we're going to see from five different texts, they're, they're shorter, so we're going to hear five instead of four this morning, is that uh, God is constant. He is um, not one to change. In fact, he has never changed. And that has just huge implications for how to know him uh, and how to live in light of who he is. And so here, here's what you're going to hear. Uh, first, Pastor Rob is going to come and read Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. And we're going to hear God tell Moses that his very name is founded on the principle that God does not change. His, his name is Yahweh. I am who I am. Then we'll uh, hear from Kathy as she reads Numbers 23 uh, and from Don in Psalm 33 that God's purposes and his plans do not change. We'll hear from Psalm 102 when Brian comes to read that, that um, even the oldest parts of creation, the very foundations of the earth, are like clothes that you would change yesterday to today compared to God's unchangeable nature. And then lastly, Sharon's going to read from us for us from uh, James chapter 1, that's going to uh, just, uh, from the New Testament, now hundreds of years later after the, the texts that have been read, say again that God has no variation. There is no shadow in him due to change. And so let's turn our attention as we hear the word of God read now. And Rob, would you come up and read for us? This is Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Numbers twenty-three, nineteen: God is not a man that he should lie, 
nor a son of man, that he should repent. Has he said, and I, and has he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Psalm 33, 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. 16 uh, through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, so we just heard from some of the earliest texts in the Bible to uh, the New Testament itself that God does not change. He is immutable. Um, when, we, when we talk about God's unchanging uh, nature, it's, it's helpful to break it down into a few different categories. And so that's what I want to do uh, this morning. What we'll consider first is that God's character does not change, and it is uh, steadfast. Then we'll look at God's purposes, as we heard, and, and think about what it means that God's purposes do not change. And then lastly, we'll talk about how God's decree does not change. So God's character, his purpose, and his decree uh, does not change. Let's start with God's character. When we, when we say that God's character does not change, what we mean is that God's essential being, who he is as God, and his attributes, what is true about him, these things are consistent at all times, in all places, with all people. God is always the sum of everything good. Uh, let me read you what Arthur Pink wrote uh, about 50 or 60 years ago. He said, God has neither evolved, grown, nor improved. All that he is today, he has ever been and ever will be. I am the Lord, I change not, Malachi 3.6, is his own unqualified affirmation. He cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. He is altogether uninfluenced by the flight of time. Therefore, his power can never diminish nor his glory ever fade. You see, God is always the same God. He is consistent, constant, unchanging. He, he doesn't go up and down. Uh, our emotions, they constantly fluctuate. They constantly change, right? We may wake up one day on the right side of the bed and wake up the next day on the wrong side of the bed. God has never had that experience. He is always the same. God is always the sovereign ruling forever from his throne, Psalm 1016. God's righteousness, it doesn't fluctuate. It is righteous forever, Psalm 119, 142. Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day over sin. God's steadfast love endures forever. 
And I, I, think, I think that particular aspect of God's character is just a favorite among the biblical writers. If you, if you type that, that phrase in, steadfast love forever, you will just come upon text upon text that resounds in this truth. He is not loving one day and wrathful another. No, his steadfast love endures forever. We heard Don pray earlier that God's mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, Lamentations 3. God is glorious and therefore worthy of praise at all times, Psalm 34.1. God is always trustworthy, Psalm 62.8. And God's wisdom, oh, it never wanes. He does not go through graduate programs. He does not learn more. No, he knows everything and his Wisdom is unsearchable. Romans 11 verse 33 says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. And brothers and sisters, these texts that I've just summarized for you, they are not how God is some of the time or even most of the time. They describe who our God is 24 hours a day seven days a week, 365 days a year, from eternity past into this very day and forever. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And that's that's the sum of it. Now we heard a few moments ago, uh, as Pastor Rob read for us from Exodus chapter 3, that God reveals a name to Moses. And you have to understand that in the ancient world, uh, people weren't given names just because of how they sound. That, that's why I was named Nathan, was my parents just kind of liked the name and the way that it sounded. That's not how names function in the ancient world. In the ancient world, names are a deep symbol of identity. They say something about, something profound about the person being named. And so I, I want to read this text again. And as we hear it, I want, I want us to listen for God's personal name, and I want us to think about what does this tell us about the identity of God? Exodus three thirteen through 15. Then Moses said to God, well, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. Now, when we saw it projected, the word Lord looked like every other word. If you look in your Bible, Lord should be in all caps. That means it is Yahweh. Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh. Yahweh is Hebrew for I am. Okay, so that's God's name. God's, God goes around with a little sticker that says, hello, my name is Yahweh. My name is I am. And so he says, tell the people that I am Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered. And so what is God's name? I am who I am. He simply is. And so one of the things at the core of God's identity is his immutability. His name is not I was 
or I might be such and such, or tomorrow I will be this and that, but I am who I am. Again, that's, that's a pointing to his consistency, his unchanging nature, his immutability. And, and the last verse that we read in that section, verse 15, further emphasizes that God does not change. And that's what's driving this name because he says this. He says, the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So he names three people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now, he's talking to Moses, who lived 400 years after any of those men. What confidence does Moses or any of the Israelites have that the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob will treat them the same way? Do you you hear what God is saying? He's saying, look, if, if Moses, if the people want to know who has sent you, Tell them, well, have you heard of how God dealt with Abraham? Have you heard of how God dealt with Isaac? Have you heard of how God dwelt with Jacob? I am that same God. I have not changed. That is who is sending Moses to the people. He is. God identifies himself as the God who is exactly who he was four centuries prior. He does not change. And the brothers and sisters, this is more than a history lesson. I, I think this is so helpful to us here today. Moses may have lived 400 years after Jacob. We live more like 4,000 years after him. The scriptures that we read, they are ancient writings, are they not? And when you sit down in any given moment of your day to read them, you're confronted with different cultures, different geography, different language. So much is is different what we read in this book than what we experience day to day in our modern world. But do you know what is exactly, exactly the same? God is. The, The central character and theme in this book has not changed. Not even one sliver. (laughs) He is exactly the same. And so that means that when we read about his holiness and his love and his power and his mercy and his righteousness, even as he deals with ancient people in ancient times in these faraway places, brothers and sisters, you can have confidence that he is the exact same God who is here today with you. His unchangeable nature is what encourages and exhorts us to trust him. He does not change. Isaiah 26 verse 4 says, Trust in the Lord forever. Why? For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Yes, he is. He is an everlasting rock. God's character does not change. Well, just as God's character does not change, so also his purpose does not change. His purpose is immutable. He he, he doesn't uh, become holy one day and the next, so also he doesn't decide to do one thing and then decide to do something different the next. 
He is not fickle in his designs. He doesn't bounce between different options. No, his goals are immutable. They are fixed. His intentions are determined and sure. We heard from Psalm 33 that the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. And so there's nothing in the mind or heart of God that is just bouncing between different things that thinks, okay, well, in this way today, I'm all about this. And then, ah, something changes and, oh, okay, jettison that. Now I'm about this other thing. God has uh, never reconsidered his plans. There is nothing inside of God that prompts that kind of reconsideration. There's nothing outside of God that prompts him to change his plans. God is never surprised or frustrated or thwarted. He does exactly what he intends at the exact time and in the precise way that he intends to do it every single time. This means that God never has plan Bs. Have you ever had to to do that? Maybe you have a house project or something that you're going about and you're thinking, okay, well, this is what I'd really like to do. Oh, but if that gets frustrated or I can't do that or it's cost prohibitive, well, then I'll, I have a plan B. I, I need to plan a backup. God has never needed a plan B. Everything he does goes according exactly to the plan he has every time. He tells us in Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 10, I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Can you imagine what it would be like to to be able to say that? I don't think I'd be able to say that about anything. My counsel will stand. I will accomplish my purpose. And yet that's who God is. Daniel chapter 4 says, God does according to his will among all the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, the events of biblical history and the events of human history, everything is moving toward God's unified, unchanging purpose. Human history is not like a frog and toad. If you came over to my house after, after church uh, today, after our worship service today, and you pulled frog and toad off of my shelf, what you would open and find are like 30 or 40 different stories. Frog and toad ride a bike. Frog and toad play in the snow. Frog and toad take a springtime nap. You know, just all of these stories, dozens of them, that collectively go absolutely nowhere. There is no purpose. And yet, as we read each story, they're all isolated, independent, and just irrelevant to one another. That is not how God works in history. That is not your life. Your life is not one among billions of just independent, irrelevant stories going on in the world. No, God is moving everything, every one of your days, toward His purpose that is unchanging and set. It is fixed. Which, of course, raises the question, well, what is that purpose? What is the purpose for my life? What what is every one of my days marching toward? 
He tells us, let me read it for you. I'm going to read a longer sentence from Ephesians chapter 1. We'll hear this purpose at the end. But let me read the whole sentence so you understand the context. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. It says, In Jesus Christ we have received redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, so there it is, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Now here here it comes. Here's the plan. Here's the purpose. God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So according to Ephesians 1 verse 10, God's purpose is to unite all things in Jesus. You might think, okay, well, what does that mean? That's, that's kind of helpful, but what does that mean? The, the, the phrase translated in our English, unite all things, it can also mean sum up or to gather unto. And so God's purpose, what we're reading here, God's purpose is to gather all things together, to sum up all things unto Christ. I think what's going on here is the day described in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everything will be gathered to him. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. There's this pivotal moment that all of history is moving toward. That's God's purpose. And King Jesus will rule at God's right hand to the glory of God. That's what your life is building toward. That's what today is building toward, that moment. Now now some people will come to that moment with great joy. Because as God's purpose culminates as everything is drawn together before King Jesus, there's a group of people, as we read, who are redeemed by his blood, who are just on board with this purpose, who think, yes, I want Jesus to reign over me. I want no other rule than this Christ over my life. And so they'll get to that moment. They will think, yes, this is what I've been living for. I've embraced this purpose. This is just... You know, top of my want list is to bow before this king. That's one group. There is a, another group that will come to that moment in anger, in fear. Because whether they've said it or not, deep down, they don't want to bow the knee to King Jesus. They don't want to confess with their mouth that he is Lord. What they would really want is, is to rule their own lives. They would like to be proclaimed as their own king. And so to come before this one, before God's king, and to have to bow the knee, that's not good news. And for that group, they will be facing this reality that, that the future, it just has no room for self-rule. It's not God's purpose for us to rule our own lives. It's not what history is building toward. The only future is Christ's rule. 
And so we must answer the question, if that is God's immovable, unchanging purpose, which of those two groups do I fall in? Am I one of those people where if he would come today, I would think, yes, this is it. I get to see him. I get to bow to him. Finally, all these things I've done in prayer and in the posture of my heart, I get to do physically in his presence. Or will we be the people who are not excited about that, who are rejecting God's rightful purpose and his rightful rule in our lives? Because those people will, according to God's purpose, bear the punishment of their treason. They will be cast out of his presence forever. And so God's unchanging purpose, it's very relevant to us. It might happen today, it might happen a thousand years from now, but it is very relevant because it begs us to answer the question, am I on board with that purpose? Am I excited about that coming day that everything is marching toward? Or am I opposed to it? Here's the thing that won't happen. God will not change his mind. There is zero, a 0% chance that he decides, well, n- never mind. We're, we're going to move all of history to something else. No, it's all marching to King Jesus. So God's character does not change, and that's how we can know him. God's purpose does not change, and that defines uh, where our lives are headed. But thirdly, God's decree does not change. And by decree, what we mean is we simply mean uh, God's word, what God reveals as true and what God commands us to obey. That's God's decree. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to our Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And so that's the way this book functions. It it tells us uh, two things. It, It reveals to us what is true. It says this is true. This is who God is. This is who you are. This is God's plan of salvation. And it issues commands for us, which are just the implication of, well, if those things are true, this is then how to live. Revelation and command. We are told that that just like his character and his purpose, these decrees are unchanging. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now, can you imagine what a chaotic life you and I would live if this was not true? If God's decree changed, you and I would be tossed about in in just a sea of not knowing what is true and not knowing how to live, right? If God said, well, this is true this week, but next week it might all change. Or this is how you should live this week, but next week there are a whole new set of rules. I mean, we would just be shooting at moving targets constantly. Nothing would be fixed for us. Life would be a guessing game. But because God's decree does not change, life is not a guessing game. He has told us plainly what is true, and he has commanded us what is good, and he has said these things will not change. 
Now, we'd have to read the entire Bible many times to trace out everything that God decrees. But what I want to do just in our few moments remaining together is I want to trace through three of his decrees that kind of build a framework around all of the other commands and revelations that we find in this book. Because there are, there are some things that are just these kind of big rocks that everything else builds around. So three decrees, revelations and commands that we find in the Bible that are just helpful day-to-day to orient our life around. The first comes from Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus said that it was this command that is the greatest of all the commands that are in the Old Testament. He said on, on, on this command and, and loving your neighbor like yourself depend all of the prophets and all that Moses wrote. When, when, he, when he was asked, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He quoted this command. And then he said, do this and you will live. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This assumes that God is lovely or valuable or worth more than anything else. Because if he were not, he'd be lying to us. If if something else was worthy of all your heart's affection, if something else was worthy of your life and your love, but God said, well, love me that way, he would be lying to you. And he does not lie. And so what we see underneath this command is a a truth, a revelation that God is worth more than anything you could live for. He is more beautiful and wonderful than anything else. And yet, we don't have to live very long before we realize that our hearts are just factories for loving other things more than we love the Lord. Is it not? I mean, I don't think I I live a day without at some point wanting or desiring some self-interest or some uh, hobby or some perceived need more than I love God. And so what we're confronted with here is that that naturally, we we, we talked about um, that, that day that all of God's purposes are building toward in those two groups What we're faced, even with God's first command, what confronts us is is without some intervention, we're all in that second group. Because we're all all loving our our hobbies or or our work or our health or, or, you know, you fill in the blank more than we love God. And so we're, as, as all of history pools together before Jesus' throne, if something doesn't happen, we're all destined to be swept away. God need only read this one command, right? You shall love your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. All right, who can stand? Not me. And the problem is worse because if God's decrees are unchanging, then, then again, this will not relax. God will not at that day just decide, yeah, I was just kidding. I, 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 don't, I don't 
care that much about what you love. I don't care that much about what you've lived for. This is it. So when we, when we encounter this command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and we know it is unchanging, the, the, the thing that, that forces to the front of, its, of my mind is, well, what am I to do? What am I to do with this kind of command? And this actually leads us to the next big command that we find in the Bible, which is repent and believe. You learn a lot about someone by their first words, don't you? By how someone introduces a presentation or how someone introduces their book. Jesus shows up on the scene in in Mark's gospel, and we hear these as his first words. He went around the towns of Galilee, and he said this, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So there we have a decree, and it's two parts, right? Something is true, and therefore do something because something is true. You see, in in the first century, the word gospel, it wasn't a religious word. It was a political word. It, it, It literally means good news. And a gospel was proclaimed when a good king was victorious over his foes, and now the land was getting rest from war. And so when Jesus marches into a town and says, repent and believe the gospel, there's no religious framework there. There's political framework. He's saying a kingdom has arrived. A victory has been won. Repent and believe because a victory has been won. The victory that Jesus proclaims is the victory that he himself would accomplish through his own death and resurrection. You see, on the cross, Jesus received the just sentence that we uh, idol lovers or God ignorers deserve. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Who can do that? One hand goes up. Jesus, but he goes to the cross to take on the punishment for what we have done by ignoring God, by preferring other things to him, by resisting him. As he walked up Calvary, he was our sacrificial lamb. He he wore our sin. And as he hung on the cross, God judged his son instead of us. The prophet Isaiah foresaw this, and this is what he said, speaking of Christ's future death. He says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. His soul makes an offering for guilt. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so as Jesus marches into this town in Galilee and says, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, what he's saying is that the kingdom of heaven won a decisive victory when its king hung in the place of sinful people. The king paid with his life what was required for his people to now have peace with God, to enter that kingdom, to bow the knee in joy before this Christ. 
And, and, and that command to repent and believe, it's, it's actually kind of like an, an, an uncommand because it's not something to do as much as it is to stop trusting in your own doings. Stop trusting in your own performance. Look to Christ. Trust his performance. Trust his work on the cross for you. Repent and believe. See the love that he has had for you to do this for you. Brothers and sisters, we didn't ask him for this. It was not even so much in our mind to ask the king of heaven to come and die in our place so that we could come into his kingdom never dawned on me. I'm guessing it never dawned on you until he came and he did it. And so what we find in this command is actually the the power and the reasoning and the strength to obey that first command. Because when we see that this Christ emptied himself, that he literally bled for you, We see a love and a devotion that we do not deserve and it prompts our love in return. By by doing this for us, he has won our hearts in such a way that we actually do start to love the Lord our God with all of our mind and soul and strength. And this command, repent and believe, it's not here today and gone tomorrow. For 2,000 years, sinners have been flocking to Jesus to be forgiven, accepted, loved, to, to confess and bow their knee in joy that this is now my king. I turn away from everything that I've bowed to in the past. He is my king. And their hearts are inclined to him, to love him. All from this simple, unchanging instruction, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Anyone here today can can do that now. That wasn't a limited time offer that has since expired when, when Jesus ascended into heaven. It will expire one day, when all all God's purposes mount to that moment, it it will be too late. But for now, it stands. The way is open. All that is required to experience God's, Jesus' victory, his gospel is repentance and faith. Now, we could stop there because so much of, of life is loving the Lord and repenting and believing. It takes a lifetime to to do those things. However, Jesus gave one more uh, big command, big decree before he ascended into heaven. So I just want to touch on it before we're, we're done. We find it in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. He has, he has gone to the cross. He has paid our ransom. He has risen from the grave, victorious over death. He is headed to the right hand of God, ascended to heaven, but he says these words before he leaves. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, all that I have decreed. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now notice the two things that this decree says are true. It comes, one comes at the beginning, one comes at the end. The beginning, Jesus says, this is part of his decree, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's, that's not the command yet. That's just something that's true. You, you know, whatever you do today, that's true. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. Then there's another truth claim at the end when he says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The command, how we should live, if those two things are true, comes in the middle. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. As others have noted, this has not uh, been come to known as the good suggestion, but the great commission. It is a decree, and if you are a Christian, this is your prime directive. You are to love the Lord your God with all your mind and soul and strength by repenting and believing all that Jesus has done so that you can be a part of him building his kingdom, of people coming into this kingdom so that at the name of Jesus, they won't have to just fear his wrath, but they can know his mercy. Do you see how these three things connect? We love the Lord our God by repenting and believing so that we can tell others about the greatness of this God's mercy and they also can come in to his kingdom. This was not, this great commission was not just an idea that was good for the first century church, but is an unchanging decree that has stood through the ages. The only way anyone has ever been saved is by one Christian going to someone else, telling them the gospel, explaining what Jesus has won, them repenting and believing, and now they're part of that kingdom, and now they go and tell. And more are added to the kingdom. That's what's been happening for 2,000 years. And you and I, brothers and sisters, are a part of that. The, the Great Commission is a command to invite people to see the love of God and bow the knee now so that they will not be cast out of his presence later. To find a a firm resting place in this king whose character is unchanging, whose purposes are unchanging, whose commands are unchanging. This is what Jesus has offered to us and this is what we offer to others through him. You see, brothers and sisters, our our world is weary with change. They're tired. Your, Your unsaved family members, friends, coworkers, talk to them long enough. They are tired of keeping up with technology. They are tired of keeping up with the headlines. They are tired of keeping up with changing healthcare guidelines. They are tired of changing political agendas and styles and fads. It is what, what Jesus said, that, that if we do not build a, our life on God, we are just building on shifting sand. Everything's changing. And we feel it in our bones. 
But as Christians, it is our privilege and our duty to proclaim this rock who does not change, that he came to find us, and that when we repent and believe, when we stand upon him, he is a sure footing for our souls. He will never change on you or fail you. He will hold you fast until that day that you can be with him forever. This is our hope, and it is our message to the world around us. Our God is an immutable God. His character does not change. Don't need to fear about him changing on you. His purpose, what your days are building to, are unchanging. And his decrees of what is true and what is commanded, they don't change. Come to this God. Know the good of serving this God. Let's pray together. I'll begin and pray, and then I invite you all to pray any prayers of confession or petition uh, that you would like to the Lord. God, we, we just thank you that what we have read is true, that you are not fickle, that you do not change. I pray that we would see that as, as such a good thing. Jesus, thank you that in your unchanging mercy you pursued us, that you love us even this day. God, as we are in the midst of uh, winter changing to spring and spring changing to summer, I pray that in every season our hope and our delight would be in you. And, and through us, as we love you more than anything else, as we repent and believe, through us would others hear of this great unchanging God that they too can build their lives upon, that they too can trust, that they too can stand upon. Thank you, Lord. And as we offer these prayers of confession and petition, God, we just ask that you would answer us not on our own merit, but on what Christ has accomplished and done.